Season 6 of Let's Talk About Sects is proudly presented by Audio-Technica, who are a huge supporter of Australian creators and whose equipment is a big reason why the show sounds great. Each episode this season, we're giving away a pair of ATH SQ1TW wireless earbuds to a listener. Head to www.ltaspod.com slash win to enter. Hi, everyone. Before we get into today's episode, I want to share a couple of things with you. I'm going to be recording Let's Talk About Sects first ever live episode at Woodford Folk Festival on the 1st of January, and it will come out on the main feed sometime after that date. It's going to be an episode about the 12 tribes who used to run a very successful stall at Woodford every year. Their green juice was available in the festival store last year, when I also presented a couple of packed out sessions about cults and conspiracies. I'm pleased that Woodford is allowing me to present this session at the festival. It wasn't a given that they would. If any listeners have 12 tribes related stories that they'd like to share with me for the episode, don't hesitate to drop me a line. And this month I'm bringing you an interview episode after last month's immense two-parter on Xenos and Dwell. After that one aired, Columbus's NBC4 television station interviewed me about the podcast and my research, and a leader from Dwell told reporter Jamie Ostroff that my episode was full of lies. I think it's telling that they said this immediately without taking any time to properly digest what was said in the episode. To my mind, even if the organisation's position is that there are some exaggerations and inconsistencies in the stories told, they should want to make sure to address any aspects of their practices that are causing harm. I heard from several former members and those with family and friends involved in Dwell and its offshoots in the aftermath of publishing the episode, and I want to thank everyone who reached out to me. I may run a follow-up at some point down the line. But suffice it to say, it's been a bit of a hectic month, so this month isn't our usual deep dive. However, I know you'll find today's interview just as valuable. Rachel Bernstein is a licensed marriage and family therapist from Los Angeles, California, who has specialised in cult intervention and reacclimation for over 30 years. Rachel serves on the advisory board of the International Cultic Studies Association and has worked with the Department of Justice providing support to cult survivors. You may recognise her from popular cult documentaries such as Seduced Inside the Nexium Cult or the Netflix series Unwell. I was excited to speak with Rachel for the November episode of Let's Talk About Sects. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to trauma, emotional abuse, and controlling behaviours. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Over the years, Rachel Bernstein has made many media appearances as a cult expert on CNN, MSNBC, the BBC, NPR, Bloomberg, and many other major news outlets. She is also the host of Indoctrination, a weekly podcast covering cults, manipulators, and protecting yourself from systems of control, 
where she has interviewed hundreds of cult survivors, journalists and experts. I often refer to Rachel's work, especially when someone reaches out to me for help with a loved one who has become entangled with a cultic group. We discussed some of her approaches as a therapist, and I hope you'll enjoy our chat as much as I did. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. It is a real pleasure to speak with you. I've been following your work for quite some time. Oh, it is so nice to talk to you, and um, it is great to be able to have conversations where I get to be asked questions that I get to answer. It's fun. It's fun turnaround. (laughs) So most people I speak with who have become heavily involved in this area, they come from a background of involvement in a cult themselves. And like me, you were never involved in a cult yourself. So I was wondering how you originally became interested in this area of work. Right. It is the case that, you know, people's personal experiences bring them to this. So uh, I had a personal experience adjacent. So I had a sibling who got involved in uh, in Scientology for a brief time. But just during that brief time, it was startling to see how severe the changes were uh, in this person's personality and their life view. And suddenly they had no more funds left, even though they worked hard to acquire them. And it changed so much for them. And when you get involved in things like this, it seemed also that the definitions of things were immediately changed. So getting along better with your family meant not talking to them at all. And um, there were things that really shocked us. And just watching that take place, um, you know, cults became kind of dinner table conversation. And I suppose I could have left it alone. But then (laughs) when I got to college, I started seeing a lot of cult groups that I had been learning about uh, as a teenager growing up in a house that was now cult aware. Um, And then I really started caring about this psychologically. I saw there were very few resources, if any, for us at the time to help our loved one. And and I care about it in a what I call a micro and a macro way. And the micro way is the one-on-one kind of looking at the person, seeing what they need, understanding the control mechanisms that they've been put under. And the macro way is really trying to look at groupthink on a global scale and what that can do from the two-person cult all the way to whole countries that utilize it. And um, it matters to me also as the descendants of Holocaust survivors. So uh, it has fueled my fire in keeping with this, even though I'm sometimes harassed, I, I still keep going. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I um, I can identify with so much of what you've said. And I think uh, one thing that you mentioned was becoming cult aware and how you saw so many of these groups around you. And that's an experience that I've feel that I've been through with with making the podcast is that suddenly becoming cult aware, it means that the topic of conversation comes up a lot more and you just start to realize how ubiquitous this problem actually is. Whereas before when I wasn't cult aware, it didn't seem to be a huge problem. And that's really been an eye opener for me. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, when you start hearing about these stories early on, you think, oh, it can't be that there are cults everywhere. 
Um, then when you know what to watch out for, you can see that there are some cults, of course, that are highly dangerous, destructive. Uh, others where they really um, are utilizing manipulative tactics and you learn to notice them. You can hear how someone's talking. You can see it in the advertisement for something. I mean, you know, you'll be able to have this reaction that other people might not, where they think there's danger there. And it's really good to be able to point that out. It's really good to be able to have these forums, I think, where we can share with other people what those things are that we now pick up on that we want them to as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So people often get in touch with me to ask for help with a family member or a friend that they've seen fall prey to a cult. And it's really difficult to offer constructive advice in this kind of scenario. But one of the resources I often share with them is an article that you wrote, uh, which is unique ways to reach out to loved ones in cultic groups. And so I wondered if you could share some of the approaches that you wrote about with our listeners today and how the ways in which they can be so counterintuitive. Uh, right. Yes. So I have noticed, you know, when people will ask me what I do for a living and I let them know and they ask if I ever do interventions and I'll say yes, because it's true. But then they have this vision of what I do that is quite different than what I do. And so I realized, you know, with shows on TV, like the show Intervention, it really is painting a picture of something very different. And the way I do it is something that I've learned over time through trial and error and also uh, incorporating information and insights and experience from colleagues who I really uh, love and trust, who I work with and sometimes do interventions with. What is really important to do, I think, is to get into a headspace from the beginning that you are going to be open you're going to be open to learning from this person who you're trying to intervene with to find out what they like about it, what they, uh, what they find is the draw of it so that you get some insight about how it has taken hold over them and also kind of what promises they've been given about all the wonderful things they can do while they're there. You want to come across a different from, let's say, a drug and alcohol intervention. You want to see them as the expert, the expert on their group, the expert of their own experience. Truth is, when people get involved in cults, as you know, they're kept from information more so than anyone else. So people outside of a cult know much more about it than people inside. But again, these people are an expert about their experience and what they've been taught and so be in the role of a student and they can come and be in the role of a teacher. So already there's a power shift, uh, a power differential that they're not going to be expecting because their cult has probably prepared them for someone swooping in and wanting to take control and taking them away. And that's not at all what I want to do. And I, I really want there to be this sense that I am interested and I am curious and I am because I really want to know what they've been promised, what they've been told, how they've been treated. Know also that they've been prepared so that what they're saying to you has probably been rehearsed. It's probably part of a script. And so I will sometimes encourage people 
to respond in an unexpected way. And to just, if they're, if they're noticing it feels very uh, practiced, to just change the subject and to drop anything about this particular group and talk about other things. And a lot of families are resistant to that because they want to maximize these moments and they don't want to start talking about other things. But it's an important thing to do to diffuse the moment and also to remind the person in the cult that there are other things to talk about and other things matter and other people matter. And so you can just change the subject and know that it's going to help actually have a more kind of comfortable uh, interaction. And I, I think also you want to be kind of, um, you want to be able to talk to them about how to talk to them. And you want to be able to say, listen, especially if you've had conversations with them about this, about the cult they're in, about maybe the relationship they're in, that this is the reason you're trying to intervene because they're with someone who you don't trust at all, and probably for good reason. And you want to say something to them like, "Mm, our relationship matters more than anything else. So let's have a conversation where we preserve our connection. What would help us do that? Is it that I ask you questions or I don't? Is it that you tell me what you know about this group and I don't say anything? Is it that if things get tense, we have a way of hitting a reset button? What would help us still throughout this conversation know that we still care about each other and love each other? And also, what do I, as your loved one, need to apologize for? Because I may have said things already that were offensive. I may have said things that were critical of you. So can I take responsibility for that in a way that would be meaningful to you? And then we can start the conversation. And part of the reason you're doing this too is because people are not treated this way in cults. And you really want them to see that you respect them and that you value their opinion and you and you care about their emotions. There's so many lessons in that that I think are important and are healing. And, you know, people have said to me, uh, I hadn't been treated with respect. If I said that my feelings were hurt in the cult, I'd be laughed at. But you cared or you showed my parents how to care about my feelings. And I realized how long it had been since someone cared and that actually helped me leave. So it's a it's a gentle experience, but still one where you're strategic because you're planting seeds. So you do cult education. I don't know if this is true and this is what's happening in your group, but just in case, here are the techniques of manipulation. Hopefully they're not happening to you. But if they are, this is what they would look like. And kind of arm them if they go back to notice these things on their own. That all just sounds like such fantastic advice. And as you say, like a really gentle approach, uh, which, you know, completely reframes the idea of intervention that a lot of us have heard of over the years and what that involved in the past, which was quite damaging in a lot of ways, right? Yes, yes, it was. Right. I mean, there are some people who really, their life was on the line and their families did need to intervene and get the police involved. They did need to plan a raid. They, you know, if if there was going to be a mass suicide, I mean, when things are really quite serious 
in life or death situations, then I let the family make their own decisions there. I'm not going to necessarily be involved in that, but they can decide for safety reasons. But with all all the other situations, yes, it really is a it, it's a it's a respectful, honorable, educational conversation. I'm sure that's such valuable information for so many people who who listen to my podcast and have these experiences. And so many people I speak with are former members of cults who have struggled in the aftermath of their involvement to find a therapist who understands what they're dealing with. I'm so sure you've had many, so many people come to you with this experience over time. And so I was wondering what are some of the things that you think that therapists should keep in mind when they're dealing with people who have had these experiences? Right. So I think it is true. There need to be more resources for people coming out of this for not only for the former cult members who have gotten involved in something, but people who were born and raised in cults and also the loved ones to know how to intervene. And so, yeah, I I always wish there were more people to refer to when my schedule is full. But What I think is also important before even talking about what a therapist needs to know that's different here is that there are some people who have come to me because they've been in a highly manipulative situation and a highly destructive situation with their therapist. And so they'll come to me, right, having really had someone abuse their power and manipulative techniques within a therapy setting or within a coaching setting or seeing a healer, whoever you're going to for whatever help you feel you need. And so it's very important, I find, for therapists to adhere to really strict boundaries where there's no haziness, no gray, where a person coming out of a situation where boundaries were crossed, will know they can trust you. Uh, I'm very cautious. I, I don't incorporate techniques into my therapy. I just do talking therapy. I, I'm afraid, actually, I know some of my colleagues do and they do it well, but I've worked with so many people who were left feeling like the reason that they didn't get better after they were given a technique was because they didn't do it right or they didn't do it enough or they didn't feel it in their heart when they were doing it. I just don't want any of that to be happening. So I keep it pretty old school. And I think for therapists to know that you're dealing with someone who has often been sworn to secrecy. So just the fact that they are uh, wanting to talk to you at all is huge. Some of the people I work with have been followed to my office and you might discount them, you therapist, might discount them as paranoid, but it actually pays to find out about the group that they've been in to see if that's a reality because there are a number of former cult members who are misdiagnosed and overdiagnosed with psychiatric disorders and paranoia when they really were followed to my office. And then there are people who have, who come to to a therapist and are taught by the therapist that if they don't share more and open up more, they are being resistant or they're withholding. You know, they're given these, these terms to have to grapple with that feel really 
insulting, I think, about them. And I would implore therapists working with anyone who has been involved in the cult not to use those words, that if they haven't shared with you or overshared with you, that's a good thing. They're learning that they don't have to. They're learning that that's not the way to make sure that, you know, you like them. Um, it's not they're under obligation. They're upholding a limitation and a boundary. And it's very important for you to see how huge that is and to support it. I also just like when I do support groups, too, if there are people who show up and now in the Zoom uh, support group, if they show up a few minutes late, I don't say a word about it. Because, you know, being called on the carpet for being even a second late is something that happens in, you know, in a horribly defaming and shaming way in cults. So I let people be. They can eat, they can drink, they can do whatever. Let's just talk. Just, just relax. Just relax. And so I think it's also good for a therapist to try to figure out what this is that is mind control and and what a cult is because what I've heard too is a lot of people have gone to other therapists where when they finally had they got the courage to bring up that they had been involved in a cult the therapist kept changing the subject because that wasn't something they had learned in school and so they kept saying well yeah that probably you know did affect you but what about your mother you know, like sort of going back to the the usual suspects and the class they took in school. And uh, and so if if a client keeps bringing up a subject, learn about it. Don't keep dismissing it because it's not, you know, in your wheelhouse. Make it part of your wheelhouse. And if you don't have an interest in that, then refer them out to someone who has that as part of their wheelhouse. Don't waste people's time. All, yeah, such good advice and information. And I think a, a couple of things you mentioned there I want to touch on. Um, one is people who have come from a damaging experience with their therapist. I've come across this as well, and it's such an important point and really difficult to know how to deal with because I couldn't even begin to understand the harm that it would do to someone to have gone to see a therapist to work through all of their deep-seated issues and then to find that that relationship had become damaging. And so, yes, a, a woman that I spoke with in Australia, she had gone to a therapist who actually tried to recruit her into the cult that the therapist was a part of. So that was just pretty pretty mind-blowing to me that that could happen. And so I think that's under investigation at the moment, but this is an experience that other people have had with a specific cult here in this country as well. And you also touched on a subject that has come up a bit recently for me as well, which is how the experiences of those born into or brought into a group as children differ from those who made a choice that led to their own involvement. And so from a therapist's perspective, I was wondering how you approach these scenarios and like whether there are kind of key differences you see in that kind of road to recovery. Right. Yeah. So it is really good to know that because cults have been around, I mean, I think they've been around for millennia, but the cults that we've heard about here have been around now for a number of generations, a lot of them, even though, again, new cults start all the time. But, you know, you're going to have a second, third, even fourth generation something, fill in the blank name of cult. And so what you're going to have are people who have it so ingrained in their system because they've never experienced anything else. But what is also true 
about their system is that this was not something of their choosing. So there is a part of them, I think, that doesn't fully align with this teaching uh, or this philosophy or theology because if it was presented to them, I think if they were independent adults in the world, I don't know if it would have spoken to them. So here they are living this life, trying to figure out how to make sense of it, knowing they're sequestered in something that is this alternate universe. And then they want to leave. And so, so much of the literature is about how you regain a sense of confidence and how you regain a sense of yourself, but there's no re, like it is how you develop, how you create from scratch, this idea of who you are and social norms and how to handle being, let's say, an adult when you leave, but being sort of dropped on this planet, which is what a lot of people describe it as. And you have to make your way. And you're also feeling too old to ask someone a question like, how do you use an ATM? And is it okay for me to ask a question of anyone? You know, I mean, how do you broach those subjects and not feel like you're going to be made fun of because I'm sure it does happen and not feel that you're going to be discounted as someone who's unintelligent. People can't picture your life and how separate it was a lot of the time. And so it's a very hard thing. People come out and and live very separate lives until they get support, until they connect with other people, which is vitally important. That's also part of the reason that I've always done a support group. So there's that point of connection with other people so you don't feel kind of terminally unique and different. But what's also true, I find, is that for people who were leaving, when their families had originally been the ones to bring them in or to give birth to them in that group, more often than not, they have to leave everything behind to leave it, including that family. And so they are having to emerge in this world, sometimes very much alone. And all the more reason, I think, for them to find out about organizations like ICSA and others where they can connect with people and other people who are born and raised. And additionally, I think that there can be anger and resentment in a way that you might not have with someone who got involved later on where someone really, really is angry and really resentful of the fact that their chance to have a life in mainstream world was taken from them, uh, at least earlier on. Now they have a chance to have it, but it's not without its challenges. And so there are a lot of people having very strong emotions. And these are also emotions that are usually not acceptable in a cult. So they even have to just get used to having them and feel okay about having them before they can have them. You know, there's so many levels to this uh, and steps to this. Um, But they really want to be able to express how angry they are, how resentful. And then uh, I guess the last point on this, I mean, we could keep talking about it, but the, the other part is that they then want to rescue they, they want to rescue the people who they left behind. And those people might not want to be rescued or they might not be ready to be rescued. And so people in cults often feel cause-driven. Uh, 
And people who leave cults often feel cause-driven. And so I have sometimes encouraged people born and raised to, for a little while, without it being seen as selfish, to make themselves the cause, to make their healing their cause, and then see what comes after that and what they want to do, what they have energy for, where they want to put their energy. Yeah, that makes that makes so much sense. And I think it kind of goes back to my first question, because so many people who who I come across in this area, you know, the vast majority of them, they've had personal experience in a cult. And that's, you know, one of the things that's driven them to get involved in, yeah, trying to help others and, and talk about the issues involved. And so you mentioned people coming out, you know, they're still uh, facing a lot of I guess, misconceptions in society or the idea that they might not be believed or they might be laughed at for their experiences. I I feel personally from what I've seen, I think a lot of the media coverage has improved around cults. I'm seeing a lot more nuanced stories and not just the really sensational stories these days, although they still tend to be the ones that get the most attention, which, you know, that's the way that (laughs) the world works. It totally makes sense. But as someone who's done a number of media appearances on, on the subject, do you think there are still some some big misconceptions out there about cults and how they operate? Yeah, so uh, a couple things about the media. I mean, you and I follow these stories, and I'm sure it surprises you just as it surprises me when there are people out there who have never heard of a particular cult group still, even with all of the exposés and uh, documentaries. It's just not something that they're interested in. and. Uh, So I think there's still more room for more education because not everyone has gotten the message. And so I really, and I think also people right now don't realize how much cults are burgeoning. I mean, with, with social media, et cetera, and the internet, cults are growing. And so, and their reach is limitless. So there are people who might have seen a documentary about Rajneesh, but they don't see how the person who is offering them this large group awareness training workshop weekend is doing the exact same things because they're not wearing orange robes and it's not a religious group. And so there still needs to be more of this educating about the techniques, the the manipulative tactics and what they look like and not to be distracted by the trappings, you know, but really get to the core of how this is the same. And even in a relationship, in a manipulative relationship, how what's happening there is the same, let's say, as in the Moonies or Scientology, uh, but just on a small scale. Um, And so with the media too, while I do value that there are some people who are really wanting to get it really right, which I think is fantastic, there are still a number of people who don't care about getting it right and know that they need to go for the sensationalistic thing. Like a couple of years ago, there was a show on Hulu called The Path. And so I remember being part of the, the writer's room. They asked me to come and and sit around on couches with all these young writers. It was actually fantastic. I love that experience. But because they wanted to ask me questions like, would this happen? Is this real? We, we're coming up with stories, but is this realistic? Um, which I really liked. 
And same thing with the documentary done um, that was about the cult on the Sarah Lawrence campus, um, where the director contacted me and said, I'm having lots of conversations with these young people who were in it, and they're not going well. I mean, he was very open, which I really loved. They're not going well. I don't know how to talk to them about this. Can you guide me? And um, I said, I, lo- I just love that you just said that. And I'm happy to do, do what I can. I don't know if I'll have magic, but let's, let's switch it up in these ways. And um, so that was really wonderful. And so they could have their, their feelings attended to, their feelings of confidence or growing confidence about themselves now that they were out also, you know, supported while they were being asked about this. But then you have the people who go right to calling something a sex cult, like Nexium, which it wasn't. I mean, there, you know, there is a small faction, but then people are ashamed to say they were a Nexium because the tagline that everyone hears is, oh, the sex cult? And I remember being called by a New York Times reporter who said, we want to quote you about Nexium, the sex cult. And I said, you can quote me about Nexium, but not if you call it the sex cult. And they really wanted to call it that. So, so I wasn't part of that article. I was in a next one where they didn't feel like they had to call it that, which was good. But I'm not going to support that because that really does make people feel ashamed in a way that is not fair to them. And I was also called by people who said they wanted to start a cult and then have me deprogram the people. I mean, I, like these ideas were so awful, just so awful. I That one was met with total silence where I was thinking, oh, what? This is horrible. And finally, what came out of, and usually I'm, I'm like, I could work, I guess, for the UN. Like I try to be very careful about the way I say things. And they just, you know, it was a conference call and they were all excited about this idea. And so it was quiet. And they said, Rachel, are you there? And I said, that is the most irresponsible and awful idea I've heard, I think, in decades. And then that's when the conversation was over. Um, I just couldn't help it. So there's a ways to go, but still there's improvement. And, And an understanding also, I think, of not blaming the victim as much as that was always the go-to, you know, that's like low-hanging fruit and it's really unfair. So I like seeing that change. That's, I'm astounded that anyone could have come to you with that idea. I mean, at all, that is just unbelievable. Right? <laughs> but I, right, yeah, exactly. wow. <laughs> but I'm so, yeah, I'm really uh, impressed with the, because as you, you mentioned, um, I, I hadn't really even considered fictional films as well in this context because I almost always write them off. It's like a fictional film that uses a cult as a, a plot device. It usually does it very poorly. And there are a couple of exceptions to that. There are a couple of really good portrayals, but a lot of them it's kind of like they're just using it as kind of a horror device or whatever it is. And so involving someone with those understandings in the writer room, in the writer's room just sounds like what a fantastic approach. I yeah. think that that's really, really It was great really, that, really that, good. That that and happened. there's a film very few people saw, unfortunately, but it really is good. And people who have been involved in cults say that it really gets it right. It's called um, Martha Marcy May Marlene. 
Yeah, I knew you were going to say really, that one. Really it is good. really, so really good. So if people have a chance yeah. to check it out, please do. Yeah, I rewatched it recently because I'd watched it originally at the movies before I was kind of as knowledgeable about the dynamics and I rewatched it recently and I yeah, really hammered home that they got that one pretty right. Yeah. That was an amazing film. And, yeah, you mentioned people not recognising in general how if they've watched something like the Rajneeshi documentary that it might relate to something like a, a large group teaching or, or whatever, which I think is is totally true. And so I'm always trying to focus on how uh, these are not all religious groups. It's not really about the belief system, even though the beliefs can be used as control mechanisms. It's much more about the the coercion and the control, and it can come from any belief system. So, you know, whether you're looking at a religious, self-help, political, whatever the group is. But when I'm looking at these groups, there usually seems to be a way that they'll get people to blame themselves for anything that goes wrong. So, they'll usually have a teaching that generally amounts to whatever problems you have are down to your own failings. And so I know that it can be helpful for some people to move away from a mindset where they feel like bad things are constantly happening to them and they're always focusing on the negative. But I was wondering, uh, as a therapist, where, where do you think the red flags are in a teaching like this? And what can someone look for that indicates that it's destructive rather than constructive? One of the things that happened in kind of a shocking way when people started getting involved in groups like EST and then Landmark and Forum, same group, was that if something had happened to you, you were supposed to sit in what was called the victim's row. And then you would be yelled at as a victim. And are you willing to be the victim in your life? And I thought, what is the point of that? Why are they doing this to people? And the people who were in it said that they found it sometimes shocking, but for some, they found it very empowering that they could step up in their life and not play the victim anymore and not use it as a manipulation, which I don't think they were. I think they were just stating this happened to me. But there was this turnaround, which uh, I find is sort of lacking in sensitivity and conscientiousness, but seems for some people to be this empowered stance. I do think that the origin of that idea, though, comes from a very unhealthy place. Um, so even if you have found some of that to be mm, good for you, that you are wanting to look at your part in things and you're wanting to look to see how you're using something potentially to get what you need in a manipulative way, I do think that... It is something that you find very often with people with narcissism. And many cults are run by narcissists. I mean, some uh, are not narcissists. I've come across actually a couple of cult leaders in my time who were just, well, they had different pathology and they kind of invited people into their psychosis. So they didn't have narcissism as part of them, but I'd say a good 90%, if not more, of the groups that we deal with are run by people who would have that as a diagnosis. And narcissists don't take blame for anything. They Their system cannot tolerate it. They don't care about taking responsibility. They don't really quite care about the hurt they've caused. But it's a way of skirting any kind of feeling that they have to feel bad about anything. And so I do think that then it is 
it's woven into the fabric of so much new age teaching and so many groups that are these large group awareness trainings and any kind of group run by someone who has as the way they approach things that if anything good happens to you, it's because of them. And if anything bad happens to you, it's because of you. And there is nothing about that that will ever change if you're dealing with that kind of narcissistic core. And so the problem, the inherent problem in that is twofold, I find, that when people learn to blame themselves all the time, they then feel terrible about themselves. They feel they are the cause of everything, just like uh, it's, well, the terminology would be different in different cults, but the idea is the same. They are bringing in or inviting in all of this negativity or bad things happening. And sometimes it's even just by virtue of them leaving the cult or sharing what they've been told not to share, that they're going to be somehow creating harm in their own lives or creating harm in the person who they're talking to, um, which has happened where I have clients who will feel like they have the ability to just finally share some of the secrets, some of the things that were made to, you know, be secret. And then they'll ask me to call them when I get home to make sure I got home safely. And it is, it's such a panic for them because they really were told that they were, everything was to, to blame on them and they could create so much harm. But the other problem with it that is really, really, I think, problematic is that it creates so much confusion in the moment where, when you've been wronged. Because if you blame yourself, then the perpetrator will always get away with it. And within a cultic system, that happens way too often. And within an abusive relationship, that happens way too often. And you want to be able to have a keen eye in that moment of knowing whose fault it is. So you know how to respond. You know why you're feeling the way you're feeling. And you also know who is dangerous to you and who to watch out for. Because if you're always blaming yourself, you'll never know that. And then you can't keep yourself safe. That's, yeah, beautifully put and really so important. I want to uh, touch on something that you just were talking about in terms of the percentage of, of leaders who would probably be considered narcissists. And I think a question that a lot of people have, if they're, you know, journalists who I speak to, they might have looked into one specific cult for a story and they'll have a, a huge question around the why, uh, why, why on earth this person is kind of doing this to a group of people. And if there's not a financial motive or, you know, something abusive sexually going on or it's kind of like what are they getting out of it and to me it always seems like any of those other things most commonly it is financial but sometimes there's no finance motive at all they just a, a sort of uh side effects of the the power and control that feeds this person who who wants to be at the top of this group and, and needs to have this adoration so it's never really about the money or the whether it's sex or whether it's something else entirely uh does that does that ring true to you? Yeah. So, you know, there are uh, a couple of cults that I've come across. One that used to go by the name the Garbage Eaters because they ate out of dumpsters and things. That was not about money, clearly. 
Um, and I think even Heaven's Gate, you know, even though that was, you know, it's a horrible outcome there, but the people who ran it didn't receive anything for it, really. I mean, they, I think that is more of a situation that you come across every once in a while that I would consider more more of a, the diagnosis of folie à deux, which is shared psychosis, and that they're just kind of charismatic in their way, and their thinking resonates with people, and the fantasy resonates with people, uh, certain people. And uh, so, no, they don't get something from that. But when you're looking at the people who are running these cults, where they are getting something out of it. For some, yes, it is money. And for some, it is knowing that um, they have power over you, which they really love. And for others, it's sort of how they define power. So for some people, power is going to be defined by how many sacrifices they can get you to make, how many people they can get you to say goodbye to, so that you are the only. You're, you're devoted to this one person only. They need for everyone to just be devoted to them. And so they need to be able to have their ego filled by knowing that you have said goodbye to your family or to your spouse. It's how, however it translates for that person and feels the best. What is, what's difficult also to see is that when you're dealing with someone who has that need for any kind of power, they're, they're sort of diminishing returns where it stops working for them after a while. If they can have people make all these sacrifices and um, say goodbye to their lives, so they will up it and they'll demand more. And, and then sometimes it's something sexual or sometimes it's something else. And so the, they have egos and ego needs that become unquenchable. That's where it gets, I think, really, really destructive, really dangerous. Yeah, that makes sense uh, in terms of what I've seen as well. And so through your work, you're usually dealing with the after effects of someone's experience in a cultic environment. So as someone who regularly sees the impacts that these organizations can have on people's lives and usually for the rest of their life, I wondered whether you have any thoughts on whether our societies could be doing more to stop the damage from happening in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, I think I was actually having a conversation with my son the other day, who's a social worker, and he was saying that so much of what people need by way of intervention um, could be prevented through so much of a feeling of community and care, having the opportunity to have equal opportunity for whatever you're needing, you know, as the person next to you. And and uh, there is so much, I think, that we can learn from when, for example, going back to that conversation, when you're meeting with someone who's involved in the cult and you're asking them what they like about it, I think it, it's almost like a recipe there for what society needs to be providing. Uh, so that they're not out there looking for this in a group. Because so often what people will say is, I have a sense of purpose. And people will also say, I have a community. I have a family. I have people who, even though it's, you know, it, it really is not 
true that these friendships and this family are in the long run going to be more meaningful, especially if you leave it because it's very conditional. But for people who really have a sense of detachment from the the world at large, but also just even within their own home, they now have someone swooping in and saying, we are your family and we love you. And even if it's love bombing, it still feels great. And if you haven't had it before, and if you haven't felt accepted, um, then you're going to drink it in. And there are people who also will stay in a cult for years after they were starting to be unhappy because they don't want to give these things up. So this is, I think, a great way of, sort of even making a to-do list for what we need to be putting in place so that people aren't searching, so that people don't feel like that part of them is empty. And I think people also really like knowing that they have access to the answers. And that's not to say that society needs to fulfill everyone's answers or needs to be able to have the magic answer, but that people want to be able to know that they're safe. They want to get answers to their questions. They want to be able to dialogue. And again, you know, when you're in school, you're taught what you're taught, but you might not be having the conversations that you really feel like you really should be having that help you develop that sense of meaning, that help you develop that sense of purpose, that help you feel safe as you emerge in the world. So I feel like in terms of curriculum, there needs to be, of course, what to watch out for and here are manipulative tactics, but here's how you develop as a human being so that by the time you're an adult, you're not searching for the things that really help you feel like you are you and you have a place here. Yeah, and that sense of purpose is actually, you know, you, you see it a lot in people who have uh, joined cults is that they're very idealistic and they really have so much to give. And I just always think, you know, how amazing if they could contribute that sense of idealism to something that would benefit society as a whole. And so it would be fantastic if we could figure out how to harness that sense of purpose for something much better than the cult. And so my last question for you is, what would you say to those who think that we shouldn't use the word cult? Uh, okay, it's a great question. So I have actually said, and you may have seen in the, the handout for unique ways to intervene, don't worry about using that word. You have a definition for it. If you're wanting to intervene to help loved ones, you have figured out that what your loved one is involved in does qualify, but you don't necessarily have to say that it's a cult if that becomes a point of contention and if that becomes something that makes someone feel defensive. It's also true that cults will define cults. Uh, and it's always something different than what they are. <laughs> and so like, yeah, it's not, it's, mm -mm -mm. no, that's not the thing that we would say about what it is. And so there have been so many, um, you know, like counter definitions, misdefinitions, just to protect the group itself, you know, so they're not called that. So after a while, it becomes a little hazy. Uh, I mean, I have my definition of, you know, what a cult is that I've come to over years of doing this. But I think it's actually not important unless you feel like it's helpful information and educational. And I would even approach it like this. Like if you think a loved one is involved in a cult, 
to be able to say, you know, uh, I'm not necessarily saying that what you're involved in is a cult. You might not even like the word and you might not appreciate it. You might not agree with it. This is how I define it. And these are things that might not be true about your group, or maybe they are. But let's actually leave that and we'll talk about it in a different way. And in that moment, what you did was you planted a seed. You let them know what the definition is and that maybe it does fit what they've been in. And maybe that's also why they're having the effect that they're having and, you know, the issues that they're having because of it. But be willing to to leave that alone. Because really what matters more is if someone is being mistreated, if someone's being taken advantage of, if someone is being deceived and they deserve better. And that's usually the language that I that I use. So I don't think necessarily, it's good to have a working definition of it that is based on science and know that you can have a definition that's accurate, which you may or may not be able to use. Uh, and that's okay. That's fantastic advice again. It's been such a pleasure to pick your brain, Rachel. Thank you so much for sharing all of this information with us today. Oh, it's my total pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. My thanks to Rachel Bernstein for speaking with me for this episode. Rachel also had me on her podcast, so if you'd like to hear us chatting from a totally different perspective, you can find that on the Indoctrination feed. Rachel's webinars and video lectures are available on her website at rachelbernsteintherapy.com, and her Indoctrination podcast is linked in the show notes as well. Be sure to take a listen. You can access early and ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also grab a copy of my book, Do As I Say. That link's in the show notes too. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was produced by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 6 of the show. If you're in the market for some top quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their range of headphones and turntables and mics that'll make your remote working setup on point. For every episode this season, a lucky listener will win a pair of ATH-SQ1TW wireless earbuds. Head to www.ltaspod.com win to enter. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support with or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia 
via cifs.org.au. And you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention at iasp.info. Catch you again next episode.